0: My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview.
1: All right. In this episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast, I'm sitting down through the powers of the internet with Glenn Bingham. How are you, Glenn?
0: Doing great today. Thanks, Kurt. How about you? Very good.
1: Are, are you excited to, uh, for this opportunity to chat a little bit of business, a little bit of faith, uh, all things? <laughs>
0: No, I'd love to. It's kind of one of these things where I'm, this is not normally a role where I'm up chatting in front of people or two people, that kind of stuff. So that's an unusual opportunity for me, and I appreciate that.
1: Cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited to explore some of your your experience and some of the things you're working on now. And uh, I guess let's start from the beginning. Where where were you born and raised?
0: <laughs> well, I'm a, a Provo kid, actually, born and raised. But uh once I was married, we moved off to Boston to go to school, and just kind of lived around in different places in the country, and finally wandered back to Utah about uh, 20 years ago. So, nice. it's uh, been around and a few
1: places. Pretty traditional upbringing in the church, or
0: uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, parents uh, was, whole family was solid in the church, so that was a good experience. Had a chance to serve a mission and uh, serve in the church all those years.
1: Nice. And what what did your parents do for for a vocation?
0: Uh, my father was a dentist, actually in Provo, and my mother was a homemaker. So that was kind of the the background there. Yeah,
1: and growing up in that household, did it, did those professions influence sort of the the trajectory that you thought you'd go in?
0: Well, only that. Uh, As I was growing up, my father was a believer in hard work, and so I was always having to do stuff like clean his office. That was one of my regular (laughs) weekly chores. And so in the process of doing that, I decided I didn't want to be a dentist. He wanted me to be following the family footsteps and take over the dental practice. I was the youngest of three sons that he was thinking would be a dentist. None of us became a dentist, and I'm kind of glad that I never had the opportunity. Not that dentistry isn't a good (laughs) profession, but it just wasn't for me.
1: Yeah. So was there like a moment or an event where you had to break the news to your father that you weren't going to be a dentist?
0: (laughs) Well, there was a moment when he kind of one of these moments when you sit you down and says, hey, I've got this practice and I'll stick around for a few more years if you want to go to dental school. And this is about when I was finishing up college and and then you can take over. So it was a little hard to break it to your dad that you didn't want to follow in his in his footsteps. Yeah, that was for sure.
1: Nice. Anything uh, worth noting as far as just your personal faith development? Obviously, being in Provo and a pretty traditional upbringing in the church. I mean, you, you did the church things, the youth activities, and whatnot. But anything is you want to know as far as your faith development?
0: Well, I think uh, you know, having grown up in Provo, it seemed just kind of that was life was part of the faith was life, and that was life in Provo. So. I didn't really pay much attention to it. It wasn't until I moved to Boston and then we've lived in a lot of other places and we've worked a lot of years in Africa that you start to realize that, yeah, it's a whole different thing when you get outside of kind of – that was the uh, that was kind of the experience that I had from uh, – from moving out of Provo, it was kind of a wake-up call to be in, in the world, so to speak, and have to stick up for your faith and have to develop your own testimony and have to, you know, be there and be an example of what you believe. So that was, yeah. uh, that was kind of my life.
1: Nice. So in high school, did you have any idea exactly what you wanted to be when you grew up? Or
0: <laughs> uh, Well, I thought I was going to be a pilot. And obviously, once I got through college, that kind of went away and I decided, no, it's going to be a business person. I'm not sure where that came from other than it just kind of those opportunities opened up. I thought for a while that I might be a lawyer and that and then I realized that that wouldn't wouldn't work well for me. I wasn't into that. And so I ended up in the business world.
1: Nice. And um, is there a story behind as far as determining where you would go for uh, for college?
0: Well, uh yeah, the story is that um, I, my home, where I lived in Provo, was about 50 feet from the BYU campus. I was probably, you couldn't, the on-campus housing was farther away from the campus than, than my home was. <laughs> oh my and goodness. my father had taught there as a professor before he decided to become a dentist, which was an interesting story, but, uh, and, and my uh, wife uh had grown up about two blocks from byu and her mother was one of a faculty member at byu so there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about that it was pretty much hey i had to go farther to be to elementary school than i did to byu but i loved byu so that was a lot of fun
1: nice so there was one application process and that was to byu that
0: was pretty much it yeah
1: <laughs> very nice and and did you serve a mission
0: i did served in brazil so and that you know, uh, I'll mention later that kind of comes out in the story of how uh, humanitarian XP and H or H-E-F-Y, as it was known before came about. Cool, nice. And full. did
1: you was that uh, did you do any college before your mission or?
0: I did. I did a year. It was back when you were nineteen to go. So I had done a a year at BYU and then nice. left and went on mission. Yeah. Nice. Was
1: your your mission? I again, we'll talk about. Uh, your, your other efforts and whatnot, but as far as your, your professional direction or your career path, did your mission influence that much at all or did was the plan the same before and after?
0: Well, it, it did indirectly uh, because in the mission field, I had gotten, uh, I was called to be the mission secretary and I was responsible for all the travel. So it turned out later on in my life, I had some opportunities to get involved in travel, ended up running a couple of software companies that were travel related. So my mission actually did set kind of a foundation for what I was to do career wise. So and I never really looked at it that way, but that was certainly something that came out of it.
1: hmm and, and then anything notable just about your your undergrad years going through college? And I mean, were you a pretty good student or was it a struggle at any point or any dynamics that were more difficult than others?
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you the funny thing about it is that um, uh, I, when I was at BYU, I was the, what they call the student development president, which wasn't the student body president. This was the uh, student that was appointed by the faculty to be the... Uh, in charge of fundraising among students, and so at that time that I was the development president, uh, we were able to raise uh, it was about then it was about fifty thousand dollars. Today it would be like two hundred thousand dollars toward putting in an automation system in the library. So that was my big claim to fame at, at BYU, as I had a chance to kind of influence everyone who went to the library and uh, Hmm. through the students that were, you know, were involved and volunteered and helped. And that was a fun, that was really a fun part of it. Wow, interesting.
1: And then, uh, so you graduate from BYU and and what did you get your undergrad in?
0: I was in accounting. So I had a degree in accounting, yeah. Nice. And was the
1: plan to always go to advanced education or?
0: I I think so for most of that time because I never really wanted to be an accountant. I didn't like accounting, (laughs) <laughs> I got a degree in it because I thought it would be useful. But then I ended up, I knew it would be a good tool for more study. And so then I went on to the MBA after
1: that. Nice. And and was the MBA directly after you, you graduated or was there yes, some? I went directly
0: to the MBA program. Yeah.
1: Nice. And what do you remember just from that application process or, uh, you know, considering schools and what direction you were going to go? Or
0: <laughs> Well, not uh, a lot other than I, the one thing I, I do remember is that, uh, my parents thought I was wasting my time, and that I, you know, making these applications were not going to be useful. So they were pleasantly surprised when I was able to get into a good MBA program and and make something of that. So I always thought, okay, well, at least I was able to, help, you know, show my parents that I could accomplish something worthwhile there.
1: <laughs> nice. So uh, was Harvard Business School your first uh, your first option or your
0: first desire? Uh, it was, so I had applied and, and I was in early enough that I didn't have to apply anywhere else. So that was pretty much, uh, the, where I was headed. Yeah. And, and easy and design, that, was right? great, that was a great option and decision. Yeah. Nice. And,
1: and were you, cause you said you, you got married and then headed off to Boston. Were you, so you were married by the time you graduated with your undergrad?
0: I was married in my, uh, at the end of my junior year at BYU. So I had a, a married year at BYU and then we both went back to, uh, to boston and uh, my wife also went to harvard for graduate she had her got her master's degree at harvard in education so we were both in school at the same time back in boston so that was kind of a
1: oh fascinating
0: that was kind of a fun experience so it was a lot of studying and just kind of waving to each other as we went uh, back and forth from studying yeah
1: nice and so was the did you both apply at the same time and and pray that you'd both get in or
0: Well, she applied after we got there because we had to figure out how we were going to support ourselves. So she went back there and got a job as a secretary at the business school. And so I would see her, she was working there. And then after she had been there for a year, her uh, professor suggested that she apply and go to the school there. And so she applied and was accepted into the school of education. Oh,
1: fascinating. So that was probably just a busy time of life for both of you. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, that was a crazy busy time of life. Like I say, we just kind of passed each other, and and uh, from going to studies and two class, and that was about uh, all we saw of each other. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anything come to mind as far as you know, going from Provo, Utah, graduating from Brigham Young University, now going back to Boston? Was were you intimidated? Did you feel like uh, you know some imposter syndrome or anything? I mean, what what do you remember <laughs> just of that transition?
0: well i don't know how you cannot be intimidated you know you're going to be there with some great people and that is true but i just remember that that was it was i felt very comfortable there and i felt like i you know i could do the work and do the job and and uh and so it was a great opportunity and had some really good experiences there and and met a lot of fantastic people that are still friends to this day
1: yeah yeah interesting um so then, I assume two-year program, two years that you were there. With okay, and then uh, so you're done with you got the MBA. You're done with Harvard, uh, and now you're ready to set off into this, some ambitious uh, professions, right? So, I mean, what was the plan at that point?
0: Well, the the big career at that point in time, coming out of the business school, was to be a consultant, uh, you know, management consultant, and so I went into consulting there for a firm in Boston. So we stayed and lived in Boston for another five years after we were done. My wife uh, was working as she was the director of cancer control for central Massachusetts at the, uh, when we were there. So she stayed and she was working there and I was working there until our first child came along and then she stayed home. But uh, that was, uh, we were there for five years and then headed out to Silicon Valley and on from there.
1: Wow. Wow. And uh, so was there a specific job opportunity that took you to Silicon Valley?
0: Uh, there was. I had a chance to work for Advanced Micro Devices, a chip maker, uh, as a strategic planner for them. And so that was an area that I had been working on and consulting. So I looked forward to the chance to actually work in in a company and be able to kind of use the skills there to help the company out. So that was a lot of fun. Plus, it was so glamorous to be in Silicon Valley and have that opportunity. I couldn't pass that up.
1: Nice. Now, your bio defines you, or describes you as an uh, expert in social entrepreneurship. So, do you feel like you've been an entrepreneur most of your professional life?
0: I have. Uh, mainly, I think all total, I've probably started five different for-profit companies, and I've probably started 4 nonprofit organizations. So, I figure, yeah, that's pretty... I must be some kind of crazy person, or an addict, or something that way. To, at least as far as entrepreneurship, I love love doing the starting up of things and getting new concepts and ideas off the ground. So that's always been my strength and and yeah. a fun thing to do in life. Yeah.
1: So how how many how many years before you started your first nonprofit uh, organization?
0: Well, yeah, that's where I had to say, you know, I look back on it. People always say, oh, gee, it's so great that you've done these nonprofits. And I'm thinking, well, the reality of it was I never even had an inkling to do anything in the nonprofit world until I'd been working for 20 years. I was just concentrating on being successful with companies and, you know, and making money and that kind of stuff. And so it was kind of one of these things where I had to grow up a bit before I realized that not all things running a business wasn't the most important thing in life. So it took me a while to mature a little bit and realize that I probably could do more in the nonprofit world.
1: Yeah. And and so with hindsight, do you wish that you would have maybe done more nonprofit work or charity work earlier on then?
0: Yeah, I do. I think that I would have had a much stronger foundation and had some experience that I would have benefited me later on when I kind of Uh, On the other hand, there was a good aspect to being in the for profit world. And that is that I was able to kind of apply a lot of the for profit management, you know, uh, experience that I had toward nonprofits. And so I tried to run those in in a little less conventional ways, and so forth, uh, than my people that were starting up nonprofits generally would do. So it was.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, like, what advice you'd have for young professionals sort of in that stage? Because I, I, th- I resonate with that feeling of, you know, listen, let me, let me just get my career established, get on, you know, make sure that uh, I can feed my family and provide well for my family. And then, yeah, maybe down the road, I'll dabble in some <laughs> some charity efforts and whatnot. And, and maybe there's this feeling that, you know, these nonprofit efforts need to dominate a lot of your time and, and focus and whatnot. And so what advice would you give maybe... To young professionals who want to give back earlier rather than wait till they've they've done it all in the for-profit world,
0: right? Yeah, no, it's an interesting issue because it was um, I started up nonprofit even while I was still working in for-profit. I, I never intended to kind of get in and start up a nonprofit organization. That was never a goal or an objective or even a plan. It was kind of by happen chance that that happened, and that's kind of how. HEFY or now Humanitarian XP started up was kind of by accident uh, because of my son. So that was, it's kind of one of those ones where, yeah, I don't know if that hadn't happened. You know, would I have done that? I would like to think I would have done something more charity wise, but sometimes it's those little personal things that pop up that kind of direct and, and, or misdirect your life into other ways where that's positive. That, that would be kind of my experience that way.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's it's easy to maybe think, well, I'm gonna do some charity work just for the sake of doing charity work, which I guess isn't a bad idea, but just like even for profit businesses, it's not until you find that passion that kind of fuel projects you into, into these efforts, right? And so um maybe you don't just do charity to charity, but find what's the passion there that you could you could focus on that would lead you into a, a non profit uh, endeavor.
0: I think part of it was that One of the things that, why that worked for me was that I, one of the things I disliked about the nonprofit world is I didn't want to fundraise. I didn't like asking people for money. Mm. And that was kind of whenever I, nonprofit, it's like, okay, let's go raise some money for some cause kind of a thing. And I never wanted to do that. So I had to get to the position where I didn't have to do that in order to do charity work. And so if I hadn't been successful in the private sector, I don't know if I would have ever gotten into the nonprofit world. So that was just kind of my my approach
1: to it yeah yeah i that i appreciate that a lot so anything as far as your your for profit uh profession or focuses um that would be worth mentioning anything you learned or uh, what would describe that journey through your for-profit entrepreneurial endeavors
0: well um Obviously, you learn a lot that way. And, and, uh, you know, when things are tough or don't work out right, you know, you have a few failures. That's when you learn the most. So that's obviously one of those lessons that's there. I think one of the things that I didn't realize or learned after the fact that as I look back in hindsight, I go, whoa, I didn't realize that. And that is that some of the things that I did had a life beyond me and were taken by other people and had ramifications and things come out of them that I never envisioned and never dreamt about. So it's kind of one of those things where you just never know when you're planting seeds and and creating situations that might later on grow into something, you know, bigger or better than anything you imagined. And, and that was, that was certainly my experience.
1: And what, what, uh, was the reason for that? Did, did these like companies grow beyond what you could manage, or beyond the vision that you originally had? Or,
0: <laughs> well, to give you an example, uh, part of the career, my career, I was uh, doing research. I come, ba- I'd gone out and been a consultant for a while. I came back to the Harvard Business School and was a research faculty, and I was writing up course material and that kind of stuff. And they had grabbed me because it was in, in the 1980s, and this was in the beginning of the personal computer world. And I had been one of the few people involved in the personal computer world. So they said, well, we want you to come back and we want you to write some case modules for us that utilize the personal computer world. And so I said, okay, I can do that. And I came back and I wrote a module that had to do with uh, cost allocation and making decisions in a manufacturing environment and that kind of stuff. And I based this on some work I'd done as a consultant. But uh, And I thought that was great. And I went away thinking that, oh, the biggest contribution I made there was I was the first one that had written computer-based, personal computer-based course material for the Harvard Business School. Well, it turned out later that what happened is after I left that module uh, that I had written, two professors at the business school took it and made a whole uh, whole industry out of it. And I didn't even know about it. At that point, I had gone on to different things, and they oh. came back and, and made it, an, call it ABC Accounting, and they had written up textbooks and manuals. I had consulting firms teaching it, and it had been it had spread through thousands and thousands of corporations until I didn't even have a clue. All of a sudden, one day, somebody says, "Oh, have you heard about this?" And I thought, "Wait a minute, that looks kind of familiar," and discovered that it was something that I had done back uh, ten years <laughs> earlier.
1: And, and you didn't have any proprietary ownership or anything.
0: <laughs> no, no, the business school was was clear about the fact that anything I did for them belonged to yeah. them. So, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't get anything from that one. That would have been nice. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So you mentioned these different businesses that you, you started and grew. I, I mean, did you feel like that, you know, that the first business you started would probably dominate your professional life? I mean, what, when did it come time for you to maybe move on from a business and, and then maybe led into starting another one?
0: Well, I think, um, from my perspective, the real key was that once a business started to grow, it, it, uh, it the nature of the job changed. And it changed from actually running and being involved in developing the product and, and, you know, doing that kind of stuff to managing more and just being the person that kind of manages all the people and deals with all the problems and makes all the decisions and relatively through people. And that I found that less exciting to do. So what I always discovered is once I hit about 40 or 50 employees, that was time to sell the company and let somebody else take it from that point. So that was my sweet spot was from the zero to 50 employee kind of a range. So that's how I yeah. operate.
1: That's interesting. And was that just some uh, a good dose of like self-awareness or because I would imagine like some of these feel like your own children, right? It's like, yeah. I can't. I can't sell it yet. What if we can? We got to take it above and beyond? I mean, was it, were these natural or difficult transitions to make when it got to that point?
0: Well, I think you it's one of those things where you kind of come home at night and you go, "Man, this isn't as fun as it used to be." You know, yeah. I used to be just out there creating new stuff and coming up with new ways to do things and new products, new uh, methods, new, you know, new technology, that kind of stuff. And now all I'm doing is dealing with, you know, having to deal with these problems and who to hire and and how to, you know, and and that kind of stuff. And that's when I would say, "Okay, it's less fun now." Let's Let's let somebody else take it from here and, and go from there. So I'm, you know, it's happy for me to look back and see that the companies I started for the most part are all still going and much bigger than when I had them. But I, uh, I enjoyed just the first part.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. And, and I, I think there's just a solid principle in that of just being aware of, you know, what it feels like on Monday morning. Right? Are you excited to get <laughs> in the office and get your hands dirty, or is it a dread? Right? And maybe no, I think
0: that's that- that's completely
1: accurate. Yeah yeah that yeah, that's really good. So uh, tell us the story. I think um, obviously, a lot of people are familiar with the term EFY, which was a, a B- BYU entity right. and and I think it doesn't need much explanation, and now that's sort of transition into FSY that the church runs and all that. but um, you created an organization called HEFY for humanitarian, especially for youth. Uh, what's the story behind that and and t- take us on that, that journey?
0: Yeah, just so I don't step on the church toes, it was humanitarian experience for youth. Rather okay, than sorry, thank specific. you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although, <laughs> yeah, we had to have a conversation about whether the church was okay with ATFY, but we, we, did, uh, we started that up. Uh, maybe I should start and tell the story about how it happened. Obviously, what HfY yeah. does is to send out groups of teenagers to do humanitarian projects around the world. And, uh, you know, in this last year there were 5,000 kids that went to 48 different locations around the world and, and generally what they're doing is building classrooms, they're building health centers, they're building homes in some cases. They're doing things like that, that where they get to kind of get their hands dirty and get in there and do some type of work or effort that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do in the U.S. So that was certainly kind of what it is and how it operates how it's got started is kind of the more interesting story, I think. And that's because at the time I was living in, um, we were living in Henderson, Nevada and uh, my uh, 17 year old son, I had, we had four kids. My wife and I were four kids in Henderson, Nevada. And uh, I was running one of those, uh, one of these software companies that I had started and things were going well. And one day my son came in to me and he sat down and he said, he handed me a list on a, uh, uh, on a piece of paper, a list of cars. And he said to me, Dad, these are the cars that I would be willing to drive. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my gosh, what have I done here? This kid is so <laughs> spoiled. He is giving me a list of cars that he will, is willing to drive. And I said, I've got to do something about this. I didn't realize how out of control things were. And so, that's, so I thought, well, He's going to have to learn that he's really blessed and that the rest of the world doesn't live like that. So I was trying to think of what I could do. And I thought, well, I'll take him and we'll go somewhere. We're in third world and we'll do a little humanitarian project. So he has a chance to see what the rest of the world lives like and what, you know, and what it's like when you don't even have a car, let alone what kind of car you can, you're asking for. Um, And so he and I, I took him and we went down to Brazil where I'd served my mission. And we found an organization there that was doing humanitarian work on the Amazon. And we spent some time there and, uh, and that was a great experience. And, and so uh, later on we thought, well, that's what all of our kids need. And uh, so we just kind of kept doing it uh, for, for our four kids. Now in the process of that, other parents would find out about it, and they would say, "Well, can you take our kids?" And we know, we you know, and people would find out about it, and come, so pretty soon we were taking groups of kids down. And pretty and soon we. What
1: year was this when this was happening?
0: This was uh, this was in 1999 that it started. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and after a couple of years, we were taking two or three groups. My wife would take a group. She took a group to Nicaragua and then I would take a group to Peru, you know, and that kind of stuff. And it, it started to get bigger and bigger. And we were trying to do this while we were still working and raising our family. So it got to be a little tricky where I'd be home tending the kids while she was off and, you know, she'd be home tending the kids while I was off. So But then we ended up hiring somebody to help us with that so that we could do it. And it just kind of grew and grew and expanded from there. So it was this organization that started, but we never had the intent to start the organization. It was just something we did for our kids. And lo and behold, other parents wanted to do it too. And so it just kind of grew, you know, organically that way until it became a big thing. Finally, we got more professional staff and, you know, now all of a sudden there's, you know, uh, uh, you know a lot of groups going out uh, e- you know each each year there would be you know 500 groups going out and that kind of stuff gets to be a big big program wow interesting
1: so how, how many years went by before you actually formalized everything and made it a non-profit
0: well it, we, we uh, i think it really got formalized in, in, uh, in about 2002 or three Um, We've been going for two or three years that way, and then we had somebody helping us. And then, you know, our first it was our first part time employee came in to help us with stuff and and that kind of stuff. And and probably uh, you know now there's obviously it's we've kind of turned it over to a board and professionals, and it's run out of Salt Lake City. And you know, and it's doing it. It's a big operation now. So, uh, but the thing that was that's kind of most interesting about it is that we. I started it because I thought my son was selfish and just needed a little bit of a, you know, come down to earth experience kind of a thing. And in hindsight, and especially what I realized and what has set the course for the whole organization, I think it made it successful, is that we realized that he did that uh, in subsequent years. It wasn't for a number of years I realized that, well, he really did that because of peer pressure and peer pressure in the sense that when I look back on it and I looked at his list of cars that he'd given me, they weren't expensive cars. They weren't particularly, uh, you know, Wowie cars, but they were just cars that were sporty that his friends wouldn't heckle him about if he ended up driving them to school in the car. He just wanted to have it be a peaceful situation with his friends. And so he was giving me cars that he thought his friends would you know, okay, yeah, this is an okay car to be driving to school in and that kind of stuff because they would be carpooling together and that kind of stuff. And so I realized there was really peer pressure, and that's kind of one of those things that we started to look at and learn about uh, running the organization. We had this, you know, if you think about it, we would take groups of about 20 kids at a time to on one of these experiences. And so, you know, all total, by the time I stopped being involved directly, we probably had 700 over 700 groups of kids go well from with 700 groups of kids you learn some interesting lessons and that's where we kind of learned some a, a really interesting thing about peer pressure um, and uh, so and the way that maybe I don't know if you want me to tell you how that happened
1: yeah I'd love that I'm
0: intrigued okay. So what happened was we started taking these kids down to third world countries. It was mainly in South America. And then we branched into the South Pacific and some other places too. But um, we would take them down about 20 kids at a time. Well, in the beginning, this was back in the 2000 to 2010 decade, um, you know, cell phones were not, their smartphones weren't really around yet. And the kids had cell phones and they were texting on cell phones with numbers and stuff like that. And uh, so what would happen is they would take their cell phone down with them and either two things would happen. One, it would get stolen because they would kind of leave it out and it would somehow magically disappear off their bed or wherever they left it. Or the other thing that would happen is they would not realize that their foreign charges were really high and they would rack up a, a couple hundred dollar bill texting their friends for their parents. So because of that, we ended up taking their cell phones away from them because we didn't want them stolen. We didn't want them to charge their parents a lot. So they would end up coming down there and taking, we'd end up taking all their, collecting all their cell phones and they and they give them to us and then we'd give them back to them when they were done. Well, and that had an interesting impact because what we saw was that there was how tremendously tied they were to their cell phones. For example, we would have kids that when they heard that they were gonna lose their cell phone, they would bring an extra dummy phone so that we would. they would turn it into us, the dummy phone, so that they had their real phone, they would keep it and hide it and <laughs> stuff like that. And that's when we realized just how tied these kids were to their cell phones and, and the and the pressure they had to do that. And a lot of them just couldn't bear the idea of not being in contact with their friends and having this period of time that uh, where they wouldn't have that contact. And so that's kind of what we started looking at and going, wow, that's really... Amazing that those kids are so tied to this. And then social media started to come in. And then we, they were so tied to social media that we, we thought, wow, that's amazing. But something happened when we were doing that. So we were taking these phones away from the kids. And they were not having this social media contact that they were used to and kind of addicted to for a period of time. And, and a couple of things happened. The first thing that happened was that they basically had to kind of know each other get to know each other and talk to each other, which they didn't wanna do. Most of these kids would come and they didn't know the other people in the group because these weren't groups like a ward all going together. These were, this was a group that came from all across the country. So there would be 20 kids and maybe a couple of them would know each other, but for the most part, they didn't know each other well without their cell phones. Now all of a sudden they had to interact with each other. So they learned this idea of talking to each other again and interacting with each other. Um, The other thing that happened was that it put them in a situation where they were working closer with each other and that they were engaging with each other in a closer way. And we started to see that what was happening was that uh, they were forming this bond from this experience, even though it was only like two and a half weeks, that we hadn't seen before and so then what we started to do is introduce uh, the fact that they would get together on social media before the trip so for six months before the trip they'd be getting to know each other so by the time they got on the trip they already knew each other really well because they'd been conversing on social media and then they would after the trip they would be conversing with the trip leaders that had taken them and each other and they would keep this group together after the trip and we realized that uh, we started to talk to these kids and realized that what was happening was that the social, that they had formed essentially a, a peer group. Now, when you think of peer group, I always thought, well, that's the kids I grew up with because it takes years and years to create a peer group. And what we discovered was that just in the two and a half weeks that they were together, plus the begin- time beforehand and the time talking to each other afterwards, we had created a new peer group. And that was a group that was bonded in a lot of cases as strongly as their peer groups back home. And the difference we saw was that this peer group generally was a really positive peer group and was having a huge impact on their lives, not just during the time they were on the trip, but after the trip. So they would go to each other's farewells, they would go to each other's weddings, they would stay in contact, they would become each other's roommates with each other, and it had a huge impact on their life and the decisions they made, and that was the objective all along of the organization was to say, how can we get these kids to, you know, value the gospel, to want to go on a mission, to want to get married in the temple. And that was the whole objective of the organization. So what we were discovering is through this peer group that was created, now we were having that kind of influence. And so we didn't really think about it and you know, from an academic standpoint, we just thought practically speaking, what what's happened because of social media and cell phones, and and, that, and the ability to travel and get together easily and so forth was that this it was now possible to create this peer group that might actually be stronger than what they would consider their peer group back home that would influence their lives in meaningful ways, positive ways from that point on. And that was a huge kind of a discovery for us. And so we started to focus on what that meant. And, and to give you an idea about what that meant, we had some, we had some of, the, uh, of the students that wanted to, that were interning with us and so forth go out and do some research on how to strengthen a peer group or how to create a peer group as fast as possible. And we came up with an idea of the three V's, and the V's were vulnerability, validation, and vision. In other words, they had to feel vulnerable, that they needed to belong, you know, that they that they were in a place where they could be open and honest with the other people around them. They needed to feel like they were part of the group, they needed to have a common purpose and a vision together. And so we started to focus on how do we make this peer group stronger and stronger and that kind of stuff. And that was kind of the 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 big thing that came out of it and was probably the the, the most valuable aspect to the whole program. And that's why it kind of took off with parents, because parents would see the impact that it's had on their teens more than just seeing the third world country. That was kind of a secondary impact. Their humanitarian work was wonderful, but it was not the primary purpose. It was a secondary purpose. And the primary purpose was strengthen their testimony and create this peer group that would assist them through their, you know, through, especially through their young lives and be valuable to them that way.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating and so applicable, especially to, you know, individuals in um, in college or at MBA school that they, you know, the peer group is is crucial. Like in, in this context, it's not just the humanitarian effort and building the school and helping somebody in need. It, it, another component of that was the peer group. So in going to, you know, school doesn't necessarily mean it's all about the degree, but it's also about that peer group. And a lot of value can come from stimulating a productive and healthy peer group, right?
0: Yeah, we had to establish some rules because we discovered a couple things about it that was kind of interesting. The first thing that we discovered was that we, you know, when in the beginning, the people we would have would go as chaperones, obviously, these are kids that are 16 to 19 year old, we had to have like one chaperone for every five kids. So we had to recruit chaperones to go with them. And, and a lot of times it would be a parent. But a lot of times it would be we would get trip leaders that would come in to help guide the group that were, were, you know, our friends and that kind of stuff. And, but what we discovered was that the younger those trip leaders were, the more impact they seemed to have on the kids. So I, you know, I used to recruit my friends and that kind of stuff that were, you know, parents and that kind of stuff. And then we started getting younger and younger trip leaders. And we saw that in terms of this whole issue of peer group formation, that was much stronger. And so mm. one of the things HFI did was just recruit kids out of college so the so the trip leaders are generally like you know twenty three twenty four twenty five year olds instead of adults, and boy they used they could bind not only would they bind well with the kids, uh, but they would uh, also be on their kind of their plane where they would consider them to be peers instead of leaders, and so the teenagers mm-hmm. would grab onto them because this is a peer and not a and not a a leader that they could identify with and communicate with and that kind of stuff. And that had a huge impact on the strengthening of that peer group. Plus it gave them a role model that was close enough to them in age where they could really use that role model. And so it became tremendously important. The other thing that we discovered was that if you got a couple of kids that were negative in the group, that it it would break down the, the positive aspect of the peer group very quickly. So we had to figure out how to keep, Uh, the peer group positive. So we saw some rules about what you could say and do in the peer group. You know, you couldn't say anything negative. You couldn't play jokes on people. You couldn't do anything that was demeaning or, you know, would make somebody feel bad and that kind of stuff. It always was just a positive. We called it a positive peer group. And Mm -hmm. so that was kind of the thing that we discovered that helped strengthen that whole peer group dynamic. So we were really focused on how to make that experience so powerful that the kids would end up with that real force around them you know, yeah. that real structure around that would help them deal with it. Cause they were all going through the toughest decisions of their lives. You know, what am I, who am I and what am I going to do? And where am I going to go school? And am I going to get married and all that kind of stuff. And they needed that peer group for those decision times.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, and I'm just curious, any advice that you'd give, you know, you're talking about these, these rules, and I just love the concept of having some boundaries there. I mean, and again, not that you can, you know, in a more less formal, um, in a less formal situation, you can't necessarily force these rules on others, but it could be the type of thing that, oh, I'm in this peer group and I notice there's a lot of negativity, you know, th- as they talk or whatnot. So I'm going to self-select myself out of that group and, and find a different pair, peer group. But any other advice as far as, uh, even outside of these these experiences you do, like how, how could a young professional or a student in, in graduate school go about, stimulating and finding good peer groups.
0: Yeah, I, I think the first thing, and the, it's kind of a point you're making, and that is a peer group element is still a factor, whether you're in school or whether mm-hmm. you're in the professional world. I kind of look at it and so we generally think about it as, as uh, you know, company culture, and yeah. I would like to think of it as kind of like a company peer group issue because, uh, I, I, you know, I like that concept that way. You know, and obviously when you're in school, you're having kind of that similar experience and you tend to have a peer group if it's people that you study with or that are in your major and doing things like that. So I think that if you think about that, that, you know, if you consciously think about the fact that you are creating peer groups and they can have the biggest impact on you of any, uh, you know, of anything, that you'll be more careful about selecting who you're with and who that peer group is you know, obviously we had to be careful about kind of screening it for the teenagers a little bit and trying to make that uh, a good peer group. Um, and when you're on your own, it's a little tougher thing to do that way. So, you know, but obviously avoiding the negative lens and that kind of stuff and focusing on the ones that are going to build you up and help you and you're going to help them rather than that. That, But that I think that concept of that positive peer group Still keeps applying through life. Certainly in your early years as a student and in the career, early career. That's that's critical too. Yeah, yeah, really helpful.
1: Anything else from the the uh, humanitarian XP experience that uh, or or model that that would be applicable for for this group?
0: Well, I think in in a like way, part of that issue that we talked about already, and that is the that peer group, is we discovered that kind of peer testimony building is the most effective way Hmm. to build testimonies. We saw that with the kids, that they were most impacted when they were seeing it from other people their age, when they were hearing things from other people their age, when their leaders were their age or close to it, and that kind of stuff. And that was the strongest impact on their testimony of the gospel was when it was coming from peers. And so we'd always try and focus on trying to have activities and events and stuff where the, as peers they were having opportunities to share testimonies and to help strengthen each other and that kind of stuff. and I, and I think that applies to again to anybody in any of the stages of life where you're there and peers we often think about well we've got older role models, but I think we discovered that younger kind of role models are closer to you in age or have more of an impact because you can identify. And feel those experiences a little bit more, and that's one of those. I, I think one of the other big things that came out of uh, out of the HEFY experience um, is that we we think about. Uh, well, There's a couple of things. One is that we we think about other people as being poor, and therefore somehow disadvantaged, and so it was a real opportunity for them to see that you know, wealth is a relative thing and it doesn't necessarily dictate kind of what, uh, you know, what matters the most uh, that way. That it's really love and relationships that matters a lot more. So these kids would go down thinking, well, we're going to go down and we're going to help them build a school and we're going to take them stuff and and that'll be so helpful because they're poor and they can't afford it. And what they would come back, I think thinking about is that, wow, we realized that what they really, valued was our friendship and our love because they was somebody from a foreign country that cared about them. And at the same time, the, the kids from the US would realize, wow, we really benefited because we saw their example of how they're having to uh, deal with life with a lot less opportunities and a lot less resources than we have. And yet they're happy and successful and, and doing well in, in life too. So it was kind of a, real lesson for the kids in terms of what does it mean to be poor and what what does it mean to, you know, to give to other people. And that's a, a lesson I think that was a great one that came out of it. Um, it struck me uh, we had a, an opportunity to serve as a humanitarian specialist in Cape Verde, West Africa. And I remember one of the things we did there is we had the, all the kids decide they were going to do something for to help out. You know, they were going to do a service project. And so here was a group of people that barely were making it in life because their circumstances were so tough. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And they said, well, we're going to have a food drive for the poor. And I'm thinking, wow, here is somebody that I would definitely say is poor, and they're having a food drive for the poor. So that's when I discovered that, you know, that wealth is, is and poor is all a relative term doesn't really mean a lot when you think about it in the, in the broader term.
1: Yeah. This uh, this peer uh, testimony development concept is really fascinating to me. And so, what is there anything specific like activities you do or things? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, how, how do you stimulate that in a group setting? Is there anything intentional that you do in order to stimulate that testimony development in, in group settings?
0: Well, certainly in in the HGFY program, one of the things was to put the youth in charge of the actual projects and the work going on and to be formed into groups so that they were led by their own peers, that kind of stuff. And then give them the challenge to do that within their own group, rather than the adults are now going to tell you what to do, that they would have to come up with that and that they were also involved in. So, for example, the first thing we would do is we'd tell before they even went on the trip, we'd tell two or three of them to prepare talks to give to church We prepared tell three or four of them to prepare musical numbers and stuff to, you know, to do in church. And the minute they come down, they're on for sacrament meeting to give a talk and to do those kind of things or to teach a lesson with the kids from their own age group from that country, you know, Mm -hmm. through a translator and that kind of stuff. And so they would be in those situations where they would have to, to express their testimony and do that with their peers and figure out how to engage their peers and do stuff like that. So there was a lot of that that went on just little Mm -hmm. techniques in terms of how to involve the kids in that testimony development process. But a lot of it just had to be with the fact that they were all so similar in age and that they were all there with the same purpose and that they, and the leaders were pretty much just slightly older than them so that they identified all together as a group.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, so what's the current status of, uh, uh the i get get the names mixed up the humanitarian xp
0: it's <laughs> <laughs> going uh, stronger and bigger than ever uh, we're not as involved in the day-to-day we've uh, started up a new organization that's aimed at senior couples so my oh, wife cool. and i are are sending senior couples around the world to do some humanitarian projects now so that's what's keeping us busy but h uh, xp is being run uh, by this group in salt lake that's doing a great job and they've got a uh, board that's running them. And this year they'll have 6,000 kids in 48 countries doing all sorts of projects. 48 wow. locations, I guess. I don't know how many countries, 35 big countries yeah. that way. So it's going yeah. going that way.
1: And if people are interested in, in learning how to send their, their uh, favorite youth on, on something like that, wherever they go.
0: Uh, website humanitarianxp.org org is the website for that. They can find out. They've just, had their uh, signups for this coming summer. I'm sure there's still a few slots available, but this would be the time to jump on it. They're already kind of signing up people for the summer. They generally run out of room here pretty quick, so i jump on that.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, what, what else uh, in this stage of your career, I mean, what else has you busy? Do you feel like you're more in a retired state or, or how, how, how is it?
0: Well, I'm not sure what retirement means yet. I guess <laughs> somehow I seem to be busier than when I was working for pay. But uh, so that's kind of where we're at. We're involved in this new uh, uh, human, this new humanitarian organization allows seniors to go for two to six months to different countries to help out and on some projects that we have and to do their own projects that way. So there's a lot of seniors that you know would like to help but don't know how to do it, and so that's kind of the And that's called the Anxiously Engaged Alliance. I'll put in a plug for them. That's AEA.care. If you want to go to the website, www.aea.care, you can see what that's all about. Wow, fascinating.
1: Very cool. Well, any other principle or story or concept that we missed that you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up or what comes to mind?
0: Well, no, I think that's pretty much covered it. I think we just discovered that, you know, this the whole issue of device. We call it device fasting. Is a really interesting opportunity to help change and mold, especially young people. If you go without your device for a couple of weeks, that can have a big impact on you. So it's kind of one of those things in today's world. We we know that. In fact, uh, we were at a fundraiser for the local hospital here in St. George a couple of weeks ago, and they were raising money for a mental health unit for young people, 10 to 18 year olds, because the... uh, the, the, uh, the leading cause of death in that age group now is suicide. And, and I think they attribute that mainly to the fact that the social media influence that's on them. And so that's kind of been one of those things where as we go down the road and we see that there's good things about the technology and there's bad things. And if you focus on those good things it can be really a great thing. So we look at it and say, yeah, what a blessing that is because it's, uh, it's given the opportunity for parents and, and, uh, and leaders to create new peer groups in an easy way because the social media can reinforce that so well. But at the same time, it's got some negative things we have to watch out for. So that's kind of the other big thing I would say is come from our experience with youth.
1: Yeah, well, Glenn, I really appreciate this. Has been fascinating, and I'm, I'm encouraged by all the all the good that you've done, these organizations you've built. And last question I have for you is: if, Imagine you're in a room full of young professionals or MBA students, uh, Latter-day Saints. What what final encouragement would you give them?
0: Well, that's a that's a big one. Uh, I guess my thought is that uh, you know I always would say uh, you know you can't have too much education. I, you know. Education opportunity was, as I look back on it and say, I had opportunities because of education that were, uh, have you know, changed the whole course of my life, has changed the people that I work with and deal with, and it's made the, the biggest impact on me. So if I was in that mode and I was having to decide, am I gonna go work, or am I gonna go to school? I know it's tough, but I would say go to school, stay in, stay in school and push that along until you're, you're at the right point. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA society.